Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and tonight we're going to focus on women, first in the developing world, and then right here in New York City. My first guest will be William Abrams, the president and CEO of Trickle Up. He describes their mission as follows. Our mission is to help women and their families escape extreme poverty uh, by helping them start a business, save on a regular basis, gain skills and confidence that will last them a lifetime, um, and importantly, kind of change their view of what's possible for them in their lives. And then you'll hear from the former Speaker of the New York City Council, Christine Quinn, who now is the CEO of WIN. They support families who are homeless, and there are many more of those than most people think. In fact, 70% of the homeless are families. Within the 70%, there are more children than there are seats in Madison Square Garden, to put it into a visual. 25% of the homeless in shelter, 25% are six years of age or younger. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, September 22nd. Charles Schwab has made a $20 million gift to establish a multidisciplinary alliance aimed at advancing understanding of dyslexia and other neurodevelopmental differences. The Walton Family Foundation has named Carol Stern, who currently serves as president of UNICEF USA, to be its next leader. The $4.9 billion philanthropy is run by the descendants of Walmart Store's founder, Sam Walton. London is going to use heat from the underground to help heat its homes. It's just the latest city to figure out that using heat it already generates can save enormous amounts of energy. Many experts believe that 25% of all colleges will fail in the next 20 years. Part of the problem is that families had fewer kids after the 2008 recession, meaning that there will be fewer high school graduates and fewer college students. A pilot program in Anchorage, Alaska, removes bureaucracy that stands between people in need and government programs by letting them apply with a simple text. And finally, Sweetgreen is putting a million dollars into better school lunches. A fancy salad company is partnering with Food Corps, which works to try to give kids more say on their school food options and healthier choices. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back with Bill Abrams of Trickle Up right after this. You can help too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizofGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. For a program committed to lifting people out of poverty, and one that wants to show positive results, it is tempting to choose participants with a good chance of success, some education, a few employable skills, people who just need an opportunity. But if you're committed to doing the most good, you would look at the most vulnerable populations living in extreme poverty, even ultra-poverty, often in isolated rural areas. Trickle Up is an organization that has taken the latter path and has achieved amazing results at the same time. And here to tell us about how they go about doing it, it's a pleasure to have with us their president and CEO, William Abrams. Good evening, Bill, and welcome to the Business of Giving. 
Thank you, Denver. It's great to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Likewise, Trickle Up was founded 40 years ago back in 1979. How did it get started and what is your mission? Okay. Let me uh, talk about the mission first and Mm -hmm. then I'll tell. And and as you uh, quite perceptively said, our focus is on people who are living at the absolute depths of poverty, uh, what we sometimes call ultra-poverty. We can talk more about that later. What are the differences uh, in levels of poverty? Um, And focus virtually 100% on women. So everything that Trickle Up is about starts there, Who the population we're serving. Our mission is to help women and their families escape extreme poverty, Uh, by helping them start a business, save on a regular basis, gain skills and confidence that will last them a lifetime, um, and importantly, kind of change their view of what's possible for them in their lives. So Mm -hmm. that's what we're all about. Uh, The origin story is is fascinating. It was started, as you say, 40 years ago by a remarkable couple, uh, Glenn and Mildred Robbins-Leet. Today we would call them social entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I don't think that phrase had been coined yet. So uh, the story in brief, Glenn had worked in the development sector all of his life, starting with the rebuilding of Greece after World War II. He became the president of Save the Children in the late 60s, early 70s. And the big idea in poverty alleviation at that time was something called integrated rural development. Mm -hmm. Let's go in a village and fix everything, schools, clean water, the economy, so on and so forth. Uh, Very ambitious, uh, probably too ambitious, all that complexity Uh, became a burden unto itself. Uh, And I think Glenn, who I never met, he he passed away before I got involved with Trickle Up, uh, but by all accounts was a a genius level thinker. And I think he went away and thought, what's all that complexity didn't work, what's the simplest thing that we could do? And the answer that he and Millie, his his wife, uh, came up with, we're gonna focus on women, which today everybody takes for granted, but for then was a very progressive idea. We're going to help them gain the skills and give them a little bit of a kickstart so they can start a business. And if they have more money, a lot of good things will happen. Uh, it was based very much on the belief that if you give people a small boost, they will take take it the rest of the way. The women are always the heroine of the story. It's not trickle up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Millie was a human dynamo, had been involved in causes all of her life, very active, for example, in civil rights. Uh, I could show you on the picture of Martin Luther King uh, delivering the I Have a Dream speech, and there to his left was one of the few Caucasians on the platform, (laughs) Millie Leet, lost in thought, fascinating Mm -hmm. picture. Um, And um, she made things happen. She mobilized the staff. She mobilized donors. She never got off an airplane without a check or a couple of business cards or both. And together they had this idea that if they could – focus on people at this level of poverty, focus on women, give them a few basic inputs to get them going, that, that something amazing would happen. Uh, they had $1,000 that a relative, someone had left them in a bequest, so they went to the island of Dominica, and they found 10 women, and Trickle Up was born. There you go. Uh, these founding stories are always so fascinating. You know, you mentioned a, go, uh, a moment ago, Bill, the extreme poverty and ultra-poverty. We hear these terms used a lot. Mm-hmm. Is there a definition of them? Yes. Um, Extreme poverty uh, has been defined sort of officially or formally uh, by the World Bank in the UN, originally at the notion, sort of the shorthand of living on a dollar a day or less. Mm-hmm. Actually, over time, that's been recalibrated to a dollar ninety with inflation and so on. Uh, so there are about seven or 800 million people by the World Bank's count who live at that level of poverty. Now, it's very hard to generalize about seven or 800 million people. In <laughs> fact, when you unpack it, 
there are levels of poverty within that. So the ultra-poor, which is a term more in use in Asia and South Asia than here, um, but it's useful in describing that segment or subsegment of the extreme poor who live well below that line. Think of people who are living not on a dollar a day, but 50 cents a day or 75 cents a day. Their lives are characterized by obviously um, having very little money, almost no savings, uh, very often not enough food to get through three meals a day. Yeah, just trying to stay alive. Especially during the sort of what's called the hungry season, a few months before the harvest when there isn't much work, people have used up their stores. Um, and, and they're living more or less the same lives that their parents and probably their grandparents lived. Uh, so the question is, how do you break the cycle of poverty, the cycle of multi-generational poverty? Well, one of the ways in which you do that and is held in such high regard is microcredit or microfinance. Now, is that an effective solution for the ultra-poor? So what we do is not microcredit that many people have heard of, small loans, um, uh, no collateral loans. So one of the things that distinguishes Trickle Up is we give small grants. Ah. Uh, think of it as equity, not debt. Uh, and it start, we started doing $100 grants. Uh, which was actually enough to get something going, to buy a secondhand sewing machine, to buy working capital or inventory for a small trading business. Um, so that was the idea, because people at that level of poverty are not ready to take on more debt. It's often debt that has gotten them into that level of, of extreme poverty through money lenders and things. You know, credit has always been available through mm -hmm. the moneylender. Now, microcredit helped make it uh, safer and more affordable, but but credit has never been something people at any level of poverty couldn't get their hands on. And is this a one-time grant? It's a one-time grant. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the amounts have, have, of course, grown some with time. Generally, they'll range between $125 and $250, mm -hmm. depending on the place and how much money we have and partners and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, it doesn't sound like much, but in many places, that's enough to buy four or five goats, which can get you started, uh, to buy that sewing machine, to get your small trading business going. Uh, to buy some cooking equipment so that you can have a small food business, a small restaurant really outside your home. One of the things that characterizes the businesses that we help people start is uh, they're home-based. People are not yet at a point that they could afford to rent or buy another location. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the definitions of success is, boy, when a business gets to the point where it could actually have a separate address <laughs> yeah. uh, and have a couple of employees beyond family members, then you're really, really going strong. What are some of the challenges that face people who have lived in ultra-poverty? Oh, the list is long. Yeah. Um, some, as I said, is simply um, uh, the multi-generational poverty. poverty. You're, you're trapped in a poverty trap. It's hard to get out. And even within a village, a poor village, the very poorest are often uh, marginalized, so they're exposed to um, few opportunities to earn money. Uh, high degree of health risks, sickness, accidents, um, usually lack education of any, any consequence. There's very little way out for them. Uh, their housing conditions are generally quite poor. You'll very often see uh, mud houses. And, mm. and, and the roof is often a very good indicator of the whole story, and there's actually a kind of technical measure called the cash poor index, where if you look at the roof and if you can kind of look around at the roofs in a community, you can figure out who's the poorest, because the poorest family will have a roof that's probably a hodgepodge of some branches and a piece of plywood and some burlap uh, and maybe a piece of sheet metal. And a good roof um, is sheet metal. A good roof will hold back the rain. Mm -hmm. um, so all of the things, and, and the other piece of this, this is important, is um, 
discrimination. Um, people are marginalized by virtue of being women, by being virtue of an indigenous group, such mm -hmm. as Mayan populations in Guatemala where we work, or tribal populations in India. Uh, they're marginalized by lack of education, uh, sometimes caste, uh, such as in India. So uh, there's a lot of forces that people are trying to overcome. Some are very clear and count, you know, countable, lack of money, lack of education. Some are much more su subtle around this sort of aspects of discrimination. Yeah, and it would seem like in combination, this must really take a hit on their self-esteem. You ask good questions, Denver. <laughs> yes. Um, in many ways, uh, a person's view of the world um, is at the heart of the matter. And it starts with confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, can I actually succeed at this? It starts with a certain amount of bravery. Can I overcome some traditions? Very often these are heavily patriarchal societies with a lot of rules about what women can and can't do, where they can and can't travel. Um, and an important, important um, element we found is the ability to plan. If you live in conditions of extreme, extreme poverty, um, you don't have a lot of reason to think that what you do will change your destiny. You mm -hmm. are a captive of, of weather cycles, of patriarchal societies, of history. Um, so why plan if you can't change anything? So we take planning for granted. And so one of the important skills that we teach people is how to visualize a different future and how to plan the steps to get you there. Well, before we get into those steps, you know, you mentioned Guatemala before. What are some of the other countries in which you operate? So we operate primarily in three regions of the world. Uh, in Asia, it's primarily India, but we've been working for a couple of years in Vietnam and Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. We work in West Africa, primarily in the, the small but very poor country and, and fantastic country of Burkina Faso. And now we've been doing some advising to some of the other neighboring countries in West Africa. We are part of a large uh, multi-year project with refugees in Uganda. And in Latin America, home base is Guatemala. Uh, we've also worked in Nicaragua on and off, depending on, on political conditions. Uh, and over the past two years, we've also expanded into Mexico. Mm -hmm. So our map has grown. Uh, 14 years ago when I joined Trickle Up, we were in a lot more countries. It was a very kind of portable approach. We were in 15 countries, including uh, a program in the United States and a number of places in the United States. Uh, small budget, small staff, and, and we said, you know, we have to step back and think about um, quality more than quantity, and let's be in fewer places with depth. So that took us from 15 countries down to around five. Now, we also work on a consulting basis, um, primarily through our refugee program in a number of other countries, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Egypt, um, uh, Burkina Faso, um, and others. Mm -hmm. we'll probably uh, have a larger engagement in Jordan fairly soon, a huge refugee population. So um, you want to find that balance between depth and really understanding the local context and building strong local relationships and also a certain amount of adaptability as, as circumstances change. Have to have that healthy tension in any organization. Well, we, we got plenty of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about those steps. Your core program is based on the graduation approach, and that's a method that was pioneered by BRAC, the largest NGO in the world. Walk us through the graduation approach. Uh, before that, a little bit of history. So for sure, what we now call graduation was conceived and developed, uh, brilliantly so, by BRAC in Bangladesh uh, over the last 15 or 20 years. But actually, 
what Brock developed uh, as graduation is probably 65 or 75 percent, the same thing that Trickle Up had been doing since 1979. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity come along, came along for us to get involved in a pilot project to scale Brock's graduation uh, approach through a number of countries. So we uh, looked at that and we said, this is perfect for us because it's very compatible. And it actually pushed us, it stretched us to, to modernize some of the things we were doing. Always trying to get better. Exactly. And, and you know, it's important to be open to sharing uh, and working in collaboration. The, the challenge of global poverty, of extreme poverty or ultra poverty, is too big for any one organization. There are 300 or 400 million people in the world living in the conditions of ultra poverty that we talked about earlier. Um, so being open to partnership is a critical factor for success. I, I came out of the private sector. I came primarily out of the media business. Mm-hmm. So um, um, there the notion of partnership is, is usually more alien. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and we're blessed. To, I'm blessed to work in an industry where, for example, we're a lot of sharing. Before, mm-hmm. intellectual property uh, was a key thing to the success of any media company. So being able to take a more relaxed view of that um, is is very important. Mm-hmm. So walk us through that uh, graduation brooch. Okay, it starts with uh, uh, targeting selection of people. We have a methodology to identify the very poorest uh, in the region, uh, in the in a community. I'm sorry, and and I can talk more about targeting. Uh, and then it begins this, this sort of planning piece. So before anybody gets anything started, it's it's some of this right. What are you? Uh, what would you like to do? What do you think is possible? Maybe a woman has had some kind of business activity but has some other ideas. And people very often have plenty of good ideas. Yeah. So you make her the center of her transformation. Absolutely. She. We're just there mm-hmm. to give a little boost, to be a catalyst. Um, and if, if the woman doesn't own the solution, it won't work. Um, so there's planning. And we work with women, uh, particularly in kind of training in groups. So part of what we do is organize women into savings groups, a group of women, 15, 20 women, mm. who meet every week or every two weeks, and they start to save together, and then they start to lend to each other. Oh, wow. So we talked before about trickle-up giving grants, not loans, uh, and then the the loan, the credit piece, comes into the equation through, um, uh, through the savings group. Uh, the other important element of graduation and of the trickle-up approach is uh, enabling people to get some seed capitals enough, uh, $100, $200. One of the differences between microcredit and what we do is it's hard. It takes a while in microcredit to get your hands on $100 at one time. Um, and so people have enough capital to get something going. Uh, and there are a variety of, of ways that happens. Some is an outright grant. Some are soft loans. Uh, one of the important things about graduation is it always, it has basic principles and a basic sequence. Um, it's usually time bound sort of thing, two or three years to help somebody go through change, go through a couple of crop cycles and business cycles. Um, uh, but you always have to be very, very aware and sensitive to the context of the place you're in and the population we're working with. So there's always Adaptation. Absolutely. One size never fits all. Exactly. I am a certified executive coach and really believe in the power of coaching, and you make that a key part of your program. Speak to that a little bit. Uh, absolutely. And just as people, I have a personal executive coach in, in, in this country and corporations have coaches. Um, coaching is very important. So one of the things we've found over time is just training people in a classroom or workshop 
type setting doesn't work very well. It's a lot to absorb, and you see the same things here if you go to a workshop, and especially for people who have never been to school. So you need to lay down some basic things, but then we work with partners, which might be a local grassroots agency, what we would think of as a social service agency, um, um, or government. Uh, we work more and more with government um, uh, to provide coaching, and a coach will typically uh, visit women um, uh, every week or every mm. two weeks. So it's what is your challenge today? And a lot of it, again, going back to that confidence that I'm here to help you, which no one has ever, no person has ever done for them before. <laughs> I care about you. I'm going to call you by your first name. Uh, what's going on? How can I help? Oh, you've got a problem with your goat. Let's look at that together. And, and importantly, the role of the coach is not simply there to just dole out answers, but it's to help women develop their own strategies, their own solutions. Uh, what are you going to do about that? What might be possible? Who can you talk to in your community who might have some advice? Um, so again, we don't want to, whether it's trickle-up staff or local staff, uh, be there in a kind of patriarchal, patronizing way and just kind of force-feed people information and solutions. They have to be the architects of their own destiny. Bill, how do you define and then measure success? So we have uh, uh, a rather formal uh, six definitions of success mm -hmm. that we created a number of years ago. We spent over a year debating this internally um, so we can have – so we know what we're measuring uh, and that we can have some simple standards. And they're very basic. Do people have enough food to eat? Uh, do they have a safe, dignified livelihood? Do they have savings? Um, are they making improvements in the quality of their life, whether that's the conditions of their housing or children going to school? And importantly, do they have a plan? Do they have a vision and a plan for their future? So that's the framework that we use for measurement. And we have uh, uh, typically we'll kind of um, uh, gather some data, some information at the beginning of someone's involvement in the program, uh, usually at the midpoint, and then at the end so we can see what happens over time. Uh, the other piece that's very important for, for Trickle Up and similar organizations is how can we demonstrate that it's our intervention that made the difference rather than maybe it was a really good weather year, good crop year, or a big government program came into the community. Um, so we're involved with partners in various um, randomized controlled trial uh, tests similar to what was developed in the pharmaceutical industry where you have a control group and then you have the active group so that you can do uh, a compelling job of, of attribution, uh, saying, okay, these activities resulted in these outcomes, and that we can credit that back to these activities and not something else. So we do, especially for an organization our size, we do more than our share of research. Um, one reason is to always be learning, always be making our program better. The other, of course, is to demonstrate to funders and others that this is effective. Yeah, that's great. And that's the right priority. So many do it just to demonstrate to funders, but your primary reason is to get better, and the funders are, are, are secondary to that. Let me close with this, Bill. In the decade and a half that you've been doing this, you have seen a profound transformational change in thousands upon thousands of women and, in turn, their families and communities. What have you found to be the key factor, the key element, that essence that makes this remarkable change all possible, which without it would be almost impossible for it to have to occur? The secret sauce of Trickle Up is the behavioral change, the psychological change that we help foster in the people we're working with. Yes, we provide training, we provide seed capital grants, we help organize savings groups, so the number of kind of tangible concrete things we do. 
But at the end of the day, um, success is a matter of helping a woman see my future can be different than mine. Uh, my children's future, importantly, can be much better. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take the steps and do the work. Uh, and, and being involved in Trickle Up is extra work for women. They don't get to sort of not take care of the house or do their <laughs> other work. So, uh, you know, you have to be aware of that. They may have to get up at 4 a.m. instead of 5 a.m. to manage their Trickle Up business. But out of that comes confidence, willingness to take risks. And a lot of this is about helping people recalibrate their risk uh, assumptions for the future. Um, willing to take on uh, and challenge some of the prevailing um, uh, mores and and ways of society, and, and I will tell you, I've seen it dozens of times, the power of a dozen women together, yeah. even women who were voiceless and virtually invisible in their community, and when they get together and they go to the local uh, council uh, to make a point or to challenge something. It's miraculous. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take a lot to make change, and, and the women, they amaze themselves mm -hmm. uh, at what they're able to accomplish. And you give them all hope, that's for sure. Hope is, is you know, uh, uh, Millie Lead, our, our co-founder, uh, said, you know, very beautifully, well, yes, we provide training and all these things, but the most important thing we leave behind is confidence. Fantastic. Well, Bill Abrams, the president and CEO of Trickle Up, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people learn more about your work or make a contribution to help it if they're so inclined? Very easy. Go to trickleup.org. There's tons of information, and yes, of course, there's a donate button. A <laughs> couple uh, of them, probably. <laughs> and, and that's great. But honestly, if we can help, if people can learn about the conditions of global poverty and the fact that there are solutions, in many ways, that's the most important income uh, outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Bill. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Denver. I'll be back the with conversation. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Youth opportunities, strong communities, a healthy planet. Sounds like the work of social entrepreneurs. Yes, but it's also the work of artists. Upstart Collab is a new national collaboration connecting artists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs. Upstart's mission is to create opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. Upstart is committed to promoting artists as innovators, unleashing capital for creativity, and enabling sustainable creative lives. Find out more at www.upstartco-lab.org. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. In one city after another, you hear about the homelessness crisis. And when you visualize it, you picture a single man perhaps sleeping on a subway or asking passersby for some spare change. Me too. But what if that isn't an accurate picture? And if it isn't, are policies and programs being directed to where they are most needed? With us tonight to help provide clarity on all of this is the former Speaker of the New York City Council, Christine Quinn, who currently serves as the Chief Executive Officer of WIN, formerly known as Women in Need. Good evening, Christine, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you. So, provide us with the full picture of who makes up the homeless population in New York City. And I think what you set out that vision of a homeless 
usually man, disheveled on the street, I think is who New York thinks is homeless. Now, why do they think that? Well, one, because they see those people, right? Mm -hmm. You see them, they're on the street, et cetera. Two, I would say uh, papers like the New York Post had made a decision to uh, pick the scariest pictures of homeless men they could and repeatedly put them on the cover um, to really create an us-them, not to bring people together around homelessness. And that's created an enormous... It's been effective from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, 70% of the people in shelter last night, 70% were families with children. That's incredible. So the majority is not singles on the street. And within the singles community, the majority of singles are in shelter, Mm -hmm. not out on the street. So these are important facts. Not because you want to pit one type of homeless person against each other, so to speak. But but if you don't know the facts, then then there isn't the right media coverage and attention. And then politicians, and I say this freely as one who's done this, <laughs> yes. we are chasing the headlines. They're trying to make the bad headline go away. In this case, the cover of the New York Post about somebody asking for money, for example. And so they drive all of the policy there. Two, if we don't, like, notwithstanding the president of the United States, facts matter. That is the fact of homelessness. The fact of homelessness is that 70% of the people in shelter last night were families with children. Of that 70%, Christine, how many of those are children? So within the 70%, there are more children than there are seats in Madison Square Garden, to put it into a visual. 25% of the homeless in shelter, 25% are six years of age or younger. Oh. The average stay at a wind shelter, we are the largest provider of shelter by far to families, 10%. So you can extrapolate from what, what our experience. Mm-hmm. The average length of stay is 15 months, over a year. So 25% are under six. In essence, they're spending over a quarter of their life that they've lived in shelter. That is a traumatic experience for children on a multiple of different levels that presently our system doesn't even focus on dealing with that trauma these children are experiencing. And that's one of the reasons why it is far more likely for a homeless child to be a homeless adult Mm -hmm. than a, a child who has never experienced homelessness. But if you said to the average New Yorker, is the face of homelessness a five year old, they would be like, no, I have had people, very intelligent, involved New Yorkers, people involved in civic life, who have said, until I talked to you, I didn't know there were homeless children. Now, that's not as ignorant a statement or a kind of a detached, rich person statement as you think. I've heard many people say that to me. Why? You don't see them. Two, they haven't gotten the press coverage they deserve. That's why we call our our clients and families the forgotten face of homelessness. Yeah, yeah. Why else? It's too hard to think about. Mm, yeah, that's right. It's, it's very uncomfortable, very isn't uncomfortable. it? Very yeah. uncomfortable. And I bet there's a lot of people in government who are unaware of that very completely. fact. Mm-hmm. Completely. Completely. Is it growing or not, family homelessness? Uh, so we... at. Last month or so have stabilized, okay. but we're still in an all-time high. But a one-month stabilization is nothing to – it's not st- significant <laughs> yes. yet. And so I also um, believe that we'll see the fall numbers go up in part because people will uh, move out once school starts. You'll mm-hmm. kind of eke it through the, the summer, but then everybody's got to go go back to school. And 
half or so of our clients come to win um the top reason is through eviction Mm -hmm. now but they don't come usually from where the marshal shows up to win they go to stay with friends and family now their aunt they're staying with may have her children living with her so these are doubled and tripled up situations when that can't last any longer they come to us Mm -hmm. the second largest reason why people come to shelter the very very close uh is domestic violence Mm -hmm. now again most often they don't come right to shelter, right? It's not exactly like you see on Law and Order, right? When the police show up. Um, and and uh, uh, they'll, go, they'll go wherever they think is safe until it's not safe anymore. Mm. And then they'll come to us. How many shelters does Wynn operate? And how many people, families, stayed in your facilities last night? So we had fi- uh, about fifteen to 1,700 families. We had 5,000 people on average a night, 2,700 of whom are children, mm. which means anyone under 18. We right now open operate, excuse me, 11. Mm-hmm. We're building one as we speak in Coney Island, uh, have started the building process in Staten Island and will take over two shelters by the end of the take over two buildings to be shelters by the end of the year in the Park Slope Gowanus area. So we are growing because the crisis is growing. This is tragically a growth industry, yeah. which is a horrible, horrible condemning and indicting statement about the city of New York. So when a woman comes to a wind shelter, how many of them are employed? Uh, about 51 to 52 percent of our moms show up working. It's interesting. We don't call our job training a job training program because our mothers were offended. Sure. Like, we have jobs. We need to build our income. Income we need building. To get, so mm-hmm. we call it income building. A, a, a little thing, but a big thing. Yes. Um, and obviously, having a good paying job is a key indicator related to your success when you exit shelter. Defining success is not not returning, which is the most important and the most uh, uh, fundamental. And just think of it, the top reason people come to shelter is eviction, Mm -hmm. but over half the moms are working. Uh, And that's a statement about the affordability and the income inequality uh, realities of our city. But I really believe a part of the reason the crisis has gotten so big is that the city administration, not this one, not anyone, have seen the reality that homelessness and the affordability crisis are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard a great speech this morning at Cranes from Vicki Bean, who's I think our terrific deputy mayor for economic development and housing. She didn't mention homelessness in her speech because that doesn't fall under her. Yeah. It falls under the deputy mayor for human services. Mm-hmm. There's a big missing link there uh, that the city's not looking at the affordable housing plan, first and foremost, through the eyes of ending the homeless crisis. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of silos in this world. There's no question right. about it. I had right. somebody on the show And I, it's not Vicky's fault. That's the structure, no, the the structure for added is. tonight, and we need to change it. Yeah. I had somebody on the show recently who was in the, the health arena, mm-hmm, and they said, mm-hmm. you would think in the federal government working in health that we would have a conversation with the agricultural department. Yeah, right. We've never exactly. had a single exactly. one. It's completely separate right. when they should be linked. So when someone steps into a win homeless shelter, what will be distinctive about it. Let me just say one thing first. Mm-hmm. You know homeless family, and I assume it's the same for singles, can walk into the door of a shelter. That's right. They first have to go to the intake. Right. All the family intakes are in one place in the Bronx. That is a grueling 
dehumanizing process, which I firmly, uh, uh, in the loudest possible terms, condemn the city for the way they've run it. Um, well, you issued a report on that yep. earlier this year um, doing just that. Right. What's the problem? And, well, you know, the problem is the perspective of intake isn't how do we get you to the services you need? How do we address the experience you're having? Intake's job, if you define someone's job by how they do it, consistently is to divert people out the door mm-hmm. so if you come in and you first of all you need massive paperwork i don't know that you or i would have the paperwork necessary to to show well i tell you one thing i don't have any paperwork of where i lived before i'm living now exactly so that's a problem yeah it's a problem can you remember like your last 10 residences you know <laughs> all you've had like where was that first apartment when you graduated from college no no. Yeah. Nonetheless, somebody who's fleeing domestic violence, got mm-hmm. evicted, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time they, and I've had people say, I'm living with my aunt. They call the aunt and say, you don't love your niece? What are you doing? <laughs> so they come to us after that trauma experience, yeah. which we're seeking with the help of Controller Stringer to reform. So when they come to us, the immediate thing that's going to be different, and most people show up in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. so the intake is done by the security staff. When we do our work, this is not a requirement of the contract, not a citywide standard, but let me say it is the best practice, all based on trauma-informed care. So our security staff is trained in trauma intervention and trauma-informed care, so they know not just to see that that mom and her children and maybe a dad as new residents. They see them as people who've been through trauma, who are experiencing trauma. Individuals. Right, and interact with them in that kind of a way. Mm. They give priority to the children, you know, things like that. So that's different, one. Two, what they're going to find, you know, once they've been there the next morning because it's usually middle of the night is that there's more because we raise so much private not so much but we need more <laughs> yeah. uh private money we have an income building program mm-hmm. all of the staff are involved in trauma-informed care if the next day their first day is a day off a school break we have an all-day camp on site for the kids if it's summer there's a steam-based summer camp so that is something unique and different the holistic nature of what we call the way to win yeah yeah no, that's that's great well a woman is going to be there on average about 15 months. Yes. What happens during that time? What kind of services do you provide mom and the kids? So first, it depends on what the nature of the family. You meet them situation. where they're at. We meet exactly. We meet them where they're at with no shame or blame. And everything we do is focused on trauma-informed care and strength-based practices. Mm-hmm. So look, we could go into the first meeting and be like, you are homeless. You failed. Makes you a questionable mom. And here are the 10 things you have to do before to show you can, you got it together or whatever, and then we'll help you. Yeah. No. No, no, that's. She, the mom is homeless because of a bunch of factors beyond her control. Two, she's kept her family together without a solid roof over her head or with a batterer. She's super woman. Yeah. But you have to help her act. Creative, resilient, I mean, persevering, I mean, amazing. All of the above, which Mm -hmm. none of them feel because society has does not value those things if the person does not have a home. So that's critical. 
Now, some people will have mental illness. Some of it will be episodic because, quite frankly, you're in shelter with your kids. If you're not a little anxious and depressed, you're full on crazy. So some of it's episodic, but some of it is persistent and Mm -hmm. profound. Sometimes the children will have mental illness. Sometimes there's substance abuse. Sometimes there's an not an ability to work, there's an ability to work. So it depends. Each family gets an individualized plan. Each member of the family Great. gets an individualized plan. Mm-hmm. And I would say our children's services, this amazing woman, she needs to like get the key to the city someday. Tammy Ortiz, Ms. Tammy runs it with such love. Yeah, and she, this is not breaking a confidence, she speaks to this publicly, comes from a domestic violence background and Really knows. Empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And these kids' experiences. And she does a great, great job. I've often been chastised by Miss Tammy for asking two directed questions. I can see. I can see you doing. I that. Uh, please, please. <laughs> Good for Miss Tammy. I'm on her side. Well, she rocks. Oh, me too. Me too. Well, um, not to call it job training or anything, but income building, yes, you do you. have employee initiatives. I mean, do you have partners where you're able to place some of these uh, women over time? We do have partners. Mm. So um, one great partner is the hotel union. Oh, that's which, great. Yeah, we identify women. They put them through, or, or clients, it could be men, through their training program and then get them placed in hotels. These are good union jobs. You can end up at like $36 an hour. This is great. Um, we've had partnerships with the food industry. Um, Andy Ahrens over at Gourmet Garage was exceedingly generous and paid for food handlers licensing classes at Win. That's like 500 bucks if mm-hmm. you had to pay for it yourself. And then they're able to interview at Gourmet Garage. But we had a dad actually who took the training and he was already at a supermarket. His manager said, great, now we can put you in management training. That was what was holding you back. Because our vision is to develop these kind of tracked relationships, if you will. Tracking being a bad word in school in the old days, but a good (laughs) word in this, where we're um, connecting you to jobs that have openings but have projected growth that meet your skills. Now, a lot of our moms said to us, we'd love to learn office skills because construction, hotel stuff, like you start the night shift mm. and childcare is an issue. So with the generosity of the Francine Lafrac Foundation and Google, we've launched, and the United Na- Nations Credit Union Foundation, who knew that was a thing <laughs> Francine did, they're now one of our big partners, um, uh, uh, you get a sk- you're taking office training, computer skills, and then we're working to place moms or dads in those jobs. And I've been to one of the uh, the graduations. Francine Lefrac was there herself, and it was just so you know, uh, parents came, boyfriends came. You know, all kinds of people came just to the portrait. It was really lovely. Yeah, that, that's really sweet. Yeah. And, and that's a great point you made because I, I don't think a lot of people understand what it does when somebody has to work the night shift. It's very hard. It and is unbelievable when you have kids. I mean, it just becomes another cost center. And, you know, these women are juggling enough already. Exactly. Throw that on top of it. Exactly. It is something. Let's talk a little bit more about these kids because, you know, we've, you know. It, it just, um, it's hard for me to get my arms around that almost. It's, right. uh, you know, I had read someplace that one out of every eight children in the New York City public school system has has been homeless in the last five years, which again, stops you in your tracks. What is it like to so, live a life like this if uh, you're a homeless kid? So that's data put out by the Institute for Ch- on Children and Poverty, which is an amazing mm-hmm. research and think tank organization, which I'd urge listeners to follow uh, uh, and get their information. That also includes children who are doubled up and tripled up, not mm-hmm. just in shelter. But nonetheless, and that, that is a traumatizing you know, experience, 
homeless children go to two to three schools a year. Hmm. You know, we're having an issue right now with some families who are in scattered site supportive. That's permanent with services. We're moving them into a beautiful new building on East 91st Street. Thank you, Councilmember Kalos. <laughs> but school started. They're going to be moved in in 10 days. Wish it could have been before, but, you know, construction delays, et cetera. The school's like, well, they can't come until they have a con ed bill. Well, they're across the street. Literally across the street <laughs> is the school. So, you know, things like that. We've worked it through. But uh, so kids go to more than one school. Kids get bullied. Yeah, I can imagine. Horribly. Yeah. Horribly. That's why, you know, we make sure everybody has brand new backpacks full of supplies for school. One less thing to, to single you out. So that's a big problem. Kids don't know who are experiencing homelessness. Should they put down roots? Should mm-hmm. they take the risk um, uh, to become friends with people? Also, children are further behind, changing schools, maybe not getting to finish homework because there's a battering situation going on, mm-hmm. you know, maybe really having to support mom with the younger children. We've seen a lot of that where the children are really the adults uh, because of all of the stressors in uh, the family. That's one reason why with Advocates for Children and Others, we've prioritized funding for what we call bridging the gap social workers. They're social workers, uh, city employees, placed in the schools which have the highest percentage of homeless children. Mm-hmm. They only serve the homeless children in the school. Now, th- this year, we were able to increase the number um, of bridging the gap social workers and get them baselined in the budget so they don't get cut every year. And we're hoping to grow that next year. Uh, the chair of the Education Committee, Mark Schrager, and the city council were the leaders in this. Mm-hmm. But that's going to make a big difference. That's also why, you know, we have homework help at every shelter. We have uh, after school activities. Even our camp is based on a STEAM curriculum to try to always help. Uh, children gain knowledge and retain knowledge over the summer. But it is, the challenges are just profound. Yeah, but what you're doing is just the opposite of custodial care. It right. Really, no, no, no. It, is a, right. it is a full wraparound of services to, to have people better their lives. As my 93-year-old father says, it ain't three hots in a cot. <laughs> he said it better than yeah. I. <laughs> um, how do you define success at when, and even more importantly, how do you measure it? So let me start with the measure. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. Yeah, it's, it's for everybody challenge. in the nonprofit sector, right. it's a challenge. So, you know, there's the goals we meet with the city and our contracts, and it was so nice yesterday. Uh, some of our shelters had met their goals with housing placement and whatnot, and the Department of Homeless Services, this, the staff person there, who I apologize, I don't remember her name, sent an email out to all of the WIN staff, CC'd me, congratulating them and noting their success. Good for them. That was really, really nice. So there's those goals. But for me, the real goal is after. Because mm-hmm. if, and this is one of the reasons we're still at such high numbers, because people leave and then they come back. Revolving door. Revolving door. So one of the placements, right, because you have to, different places people can, ways people can leave, is family reunification. The city pushes that because it's free to the city and it can be quicker, which means you go back to your aunt. You go back to your partner. Yes, we ask you if he's not a batterer, but Mm. we we don't check. I mean, how do you check? So those don't work. Mm -hmm. They are the one of the the placement has the statistically highest return to shelter rate. Now, 
it is hard to measure because the city sees our relationship to the data on our clients as done when the family moves out. File it away. We do a hand tabulation every year. And last year, 89% of the families who had left shelter the prior year were still living outside of shelter, which to me is a really great success. It's a wonderful number. Yeah. Now, when you ask the city what's their um, return to shelter rate, they'll tell you 3 to 4% of their um, of, uh, uh, clients uh, return to shelter. And then they'll slip in on subsidized placements, which mm. means NYCHA or with a voucher or yeah. Section 8. Mm-hmm. Ours in that category is 2%, mm-hmm. but they're not answering the question. Right, right. So we don't really know what it's this is. It's an apple and oranges comparison. Totally. It's quick. It's good spin. <laughs> yeah. God bless the press department, but it's not the real number. Mm-hmm. So I would want to know for longer than a year are they out of shelter. I would want to know if they left with a job, Have they still? do they still have that job? If they don't have that job, do they now have a higher paying job? Better job. Better yeah. job. Or do they have no job? I would want to know how the children are doing in school. Quite frankly, kids who go to our summer STEAM camp, I would like to know whether they do better the next year in school. Because if not, we need to work on our curriculum. Can't do that unless you have the data. And that's an enormous problem with the city. I know it's something the Robin Hood Foundation is working aggressively on and lots of others. But, but it's, And it's a challenge for the philanthropic world because they really want data, and mm-hmm. I get it. They want return on investment. They want to know success. And it's frustrating to not be, be able to give institutions, which are very um, – now, very data-driven, very result-oriented, very sophisticated in metrics, et cetera. I wish a few of them were a bit more sophisticated, though, and would agree to pay for that right, evaluation yeah, right, and right, that right, data. They right. want it, but right. too many of them don't want to cough up for it. Oh, you know? please, yeah. yeah. Well, all of this costs a lot of money. This whole suite of holistic service ain't inexpensive. So what is your funding model? What does the city do for you, and who are some of your key partners in addition to the ones you've already made? So we will always, and groups like us, be a level of government funding that uh, in, you know, nonprofit business school, they would teach you is unbalanced. Mm-hmm. That is true. It's about 85% of our budget is government contracts. Yeah. That's because we provide a service that the city by law is required to preserve, pr- pr- provide. The city just recognized long ago they were not as good at it as not-for-profits, and I support that. So 85% is go- contracts, city, state, and federal. Vast majority city, though that's money that pa- is a pass on much of it from the Fed. So mm-hmm. we always have to be wary of what the president is saying um, or doing. Mm-hmm. Then the remainder comes from foundations and corporations, individual giving, events, and things of that nature. We've all, Our income building program has always and tremendously been supported by Pepsi. I want to give them a huge shout out. BlackRock has uh, supported an initiative targeting income building for young adults. That's been great. The Clark Foundation is the really only foundation out there that also supports our advocacy work, which is great. Robin Hood is our biggest funder. Um, City uh, group, uh, I still want to call it Citibank, Um, uh, uh, and I still think they're on Long Island City, Um, you know, has been very good to us. We have a long list of folks. AT&T just gave us a grant. There's a story in the Daily News where we're taking uh, juniors 
who were living at Wynn on college tours. And Jennifer Rabbit and Hunter just, you know, welcomed a group wonderfully. So uh, just those are some. Yeah, well, you got some blue chip names, that's Thank for you. sure. Last, we have a big gala every year. One of our honorees, Rick Clark of Brookfield mm-hmm. Group last year, did. Uh, he and his team did an amazing job. So, mm-hmm. You know, you have been known as someone who's very goal-oriented and likes to get things done. What have you found to be the difference, Christine, about getting stuff done in the nonprofit sector as compared to the government sector? Well, a couple of things. One, you know, when you're in government, this is a slight bit of an exaggeration, but not really. You have the ability, you know, if you're speaker uh, or somebody of a position like that, you can pick up the phone and say, do this. Yes. And often and people a little louder voice to, than that. You know, I was born with a loud voice and, and some find it annoying, such as life. Uh, but it gets it can get much louder. Um, and. I don't, I don't, it's three phone calls. It's two weeks of work. It's three mm-hmm. weeks of strategy, whatever. But so that's, that's frustrating that you don't have that immediate uh, uh, ability is, is frustrating. Now, the other thing I noticed when I got to win, within a lot of the staff now, there was, it's all changed, the sense of we don't have to take that. Mm-hmm. They need us more than we need them say no didn't exist people and i understand it but people felt like we had to do whatever the city wanted the way the city wanted it for the amount of money they wanted it and this idea of being a a provider to the city but also advocating to change things in the city was hard for people to wrap their mind around it but the team has done an amazing job and you really uh see the frontline staff thinking about what should be on the advocacy agenda and engaged. So that's something where myself and and others, including our chief strategy officer, Megan Linehan, who came from government with me, I think have been able to bring a particular refresher perspective about that I'm psyched that we were able to do. That's really important because, you know, too many nonprofits have a bigger mentality. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't work. What you have to do is say, hey, we have value in this equation as well. And when you can deal with that, those folks in an equal way, it works better actually for everybody and you have much more honest discussions than you otherwise might. Totally. And I know that's harder for smaller groups. So I'm not unmindful about that but we have some great umbrella groups like homeless services united and others who can help do that and i know we at win are always prepared to stand with our sister organizations that might have a little less funding to back them up mm-hmm. you miss life in uh, city politics at all or yeah yeah i mean who wouldn't uh you know being sp- <laughs> well, i don't know a lot of people i think but <laughs> you know i loved being in government i uh-huh. loved everything about it i loved the team i loved the ability to get things done I mean, I get to go all over the city still with all our our our, um, our different facilities, but I, you know, miss the more regular experience of yeah. getting to meet New Yorkers all over the city. I, you know, I once had uh, lunch with the great late Judith Kay, mm-hmm. the first woman to chair the state's highest uh, court, and uh, she actually married me and Kim. But she said to me once, if she could have been chief judge for five more minutes. She would have taken it. Uh-huh. And that's how I felt about being speaker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a really great story there. Let me close with this, Christine. You know, although Wynn is dealing with a systemic problem, you're really doing so one woman and family at a time. That's what the staff says uh, all the time. That's, uh, that's the way you've described it. Share with us the impact your organization has had on one of those families. So I'll tell you about the first family I ever met. 
this mom, and she was a domestic violence survivor. She went to her cousin's house. He found her there. Mm-hmm. He beat her basically bloody in the yard. Um, she knew she couldn't put her cousin in that situation. Again, not thinking of herself. She ends up at Wynn, in one of our East Harlem shelters. And I meet her, I don't know, maybe she's been there a couple of weeks or something. Beautiful little girl, super smart. She's about one and a half of the time, but knew where all the fruit in the puzzle and knew which pieces they went into, which is a pretty big deal. At that age, uh, one and a quarter, one and a half, um, she, I'll never forget, she said, when I met her, do you know what McGraw-Hill is? And I said, yeah, yes. She said, well, Wynn sent me to a women's event there. And they gave me this. And she went into her underwear drawer, which is where all, all uh, uh, women keep the most important things. The valuables. Yeah. And pulls out a notebook. I'm sure the radio station has them. We all have them that say, said McGraw-Hill on them. Mm-hmm. And she thrust it at me and said, they gave me this. Mm-hmm. And she kept saying it over and over again. She'll never write in that notebook. It's not a notebook. It's in a statement. That a big company, a thing in the world, believed in her. I mean. Yeah, that says a lot. It says a lot. Now she works for the Parks Department. Last I heard, she'd gotten a license to drive the big truck, which is a big deal. I don't know the name of the big truck. Big deal. And uh, she's contemplating. I need to find out where that went, of going to a a horticultural college. You know, that's such a great story. You know, it reminds me, too. And I want to thank the borough president, Gail Benjamin, who helped us get her a job at Parks. It reminds me of a story um, we had the CEO of Genesis on. Oh, There's sure. The job training program. Yeah, yeah. You know what they do at their graduation uh, ceremony? They give each of the young people a business card. Oh, that's <laughs> fabulous. And you, it's like, well, I, I may a, steal that idea. Yeah, I'm somebody. You right. Look at my name, exactly. you know, with under whatever the company may be that they're going to go and intern with or whatever. Isn't that that's great? That's great. Yeah. Well, you were too. Christine oh, Quinn, you. Uh, President and CEO of Win. I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can people learn more about the organization Please. or make a contribution if they're so inclined to do so? Absolutely, absolutely. You need to go to our website, which is winnyc2n, so W-I-N-N-Y-C, altogether.org. And we have, uh, we'll start doing holiday gifts for the families, and we do it really great that we get the specifics for the, what mom and the other parent, if there's one, and the kids want. People then take... Uh, those letters, so to speak, you can do it on the computer, and buy exactly what they want. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, of the reasonable the couple. Then the uh, people will either, our volunteers will do it, or the people who've sponsored will do it. They wrap the gifts, put on the bottom the mom's name and the unit number, so the parents or mom have it in the morning, oh, wow. and nobody knows it was donated. It's as if mom went out and got it. Very, very So sweet. people can sign up to be, you know, holiday letters. Uh, I don't know what we call them. Um, uh, we, we used to call them Secret Santa, but we don't call them that anymore. Anyway, holiday whatever. givers or whatever <laughs> on our website. So you can also sign up to give an amount monthly, sponsor different events. It, it, it makes a difference because without private fun, fa- uh, private financial support, we can't do income building. Yeah. We can't do trauma-informed care. So we really need people's uh, gifts. And, you know, I understand, trust me, I'm losing sleep over Brexit. I'm not kidding. It's mm-hmm. such a horrible thing. And Boris Johnson, I thought that was like, I kept saying out loud, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. That's not true. Um, but this is a, a really good investment. Mm-hmm. Your money will be well spent. I think the 89% speaks to that. But it's also a 
a good news gift. Yeah, yeah. It helps. No, very positive. Yeah. And unlike government money for you, you have some discretion with it to do what you need as opposed to having to do what the contract Foundation says. people, <laughs> bring back some general operating. All You're right. killing us. So, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Christine. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be one of the leading authorities in the world on the Amazon. He is ethnobotanist Dr. Mark Plotkin of the Amazon Conservation Team. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.